Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. Joining me today is Michael Hawley, the author of the books Jack the Ripper Suspect, Dr. Francis Tumblety, The Ripper's Haunts, and his latest new release, Dr. Francis Tumblety and the Railway Ripper, all published by Sunbury Press, all available on Amazon and other online retailers. And all concerning the Ripper suspect, first made public by Stuart Evans's discovery of the little child letter, Dr. Francis Tumblety. Mike should be a familiar figure to Ripperologists and Ripper researchers and to listeners of the podcast, as he's been a guest on RipperCast many times before. So welcome again to the show, Mike. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Now, this is your third book on Tumblety, and you've been researching his life for the better part of a decade, if not longer. And a lot of our listeners might be asking themselves, what is it about Tumblety that continues to fascinate you? That question, I like that question. When I started was because I had uh, got word of Stuart Evans discovering a suspect that's buried an hour and a half away from me in Rochester, New York. So that, that piqued my interest. And and what I found out is every uh, my my style of research because I'm in the physical sciences paleontology, it's kind of a uh, you know I I, uh, I just love the kind of research and so I was finding new things and every stone I unturned seemed to be damning. I was I was uh, to the case for example the the middle book when we found those uh, the uh, the 40 plus sworn testimonies of here's, you know, talking about Tumblety and much, much, some of that information could very well have been uh, damning to him being a suspect, but it was kind of the reverse in a lot of cases. So I keep on finding things. And that's the exciting part is because it's everything, every book I have is just a wealth of new information and, uh, and it, I just love discovery. So he allows me to get uh, get my my uh, desire, my passion for discovery out, and then uh, so and also because we do have a community of of ripper experts and enthusiasts that are interested, and it's a, it's an opportunity to to really uh, add to this uh, Whitechapel mystery. So uh, now I'm I'm part of it, so I enjoy it. Just in case anyone's listening that is unaware or just maybe vaguely aware of this Ripper suspect, can you give us a bit of his history? Basically, Dr. Tumblety in a nutshell. Sure. Uh, what happened was, is he was actually born in County Meath, Ireland. And some of his family members had already come to America because Ireland was was having financial troubles even before the potato famine. And so... During the potato famine, his father actually was a farmer and, and in County Meath. And what happened was, is they basically uh, came to America on a famine ship in uh, 1847. So in Rochester, within nine years, he hooked himself up with, he was a younger man, but he hooked himself up with a couple of quack doctors, different kinds of quack doctors. But by 1856, he was on his own now, and he called himself an Indian herb doctor, but it was still a quack doctor. And, and one of the things I had lately been researching in Canada is how he scammed people, how he became a millionaire within three years 
when he first started uh, by the time he got to Toronto. And then he kind of, uh, in the meantime, the, he, he actually had a passion for young men and he had a, always had a bitter hatred of, of widow or maid, uh, especially prostitutes. And then, so that right there kind of followed him, uh, through Canada. He, uh, he got, um, one of his patients died around uh, 1860 in uh, in uh, northeastern Canada in St. John's. And so he sneaked out of the country to so he wouldn't uh, get uh, because he was going to be charged with manslaughter. And so then he came to America and started the business right through the Civil War. Again, here it is. Uh, he was always involved where he he was a uh, he was always advertising newspapers and uh, his secret of success was basically circus style going in and uh, being different and uh, claiming to be the best you know cure-all and he really did rake in the, the the dough but again in the meantime he got himself in trouble by molesting young uh, young men or uh, a lot of things but by 1870 even though his autobiography says he went to London in 1869, I found out he did not. He was hiding in Western New York. It was 1873 was the first time he went back to London. And he went to London because he, the army, U.S. Army stole some money from him. So he was trying to get it back from the, from the, uh, because he was a British, considered himself a British subject still. But that got him back to London or England. And so then from 1873 to 1888, he, would always make trips, one to two trips a year back to London. And one of his big passions, even from 1860, was at night going into the slums. And that that really put himself in the Whitechapel district. He admitted he was in the Whitechapel district during the, the Ripper murders. And for some reason, which we, you know, we talk about is that Scotland Yard, um, he became a suspect. And then uh, that kind of is tumbled in a nutshell. Now, you had already kind of touched on this um, a little bit um, before, but uh, for someone who was a total unknown prior to the discovery of the Little Child Letter about 30 years ago, the research carried out by Stuart Evans and then Timothy Reardon at the beginning after the discovery, which in hindsight, it barely scratched the surface. Um, yes. Doing... Due to, due to your efforts and those of a, a couple of your research colleagues who you also kind of alluded to, it's astonishing that there's probably now more known about him, Tumblety, today than there is about any other Ripper suspect. And I chalk this up in part to both Tumblety's own penchant for self-publicity as you alluded to, and also to your singular determination to unearth seemingly every existing little bit of informational nugget about him. Yes. So isn't that curious that a guy who emerges um, from one of the leading Ripper researchers work, Stuart, Stuart Evans, just 30 years ago, now, you know, his biography is the most well-known, well-understood of all of the Ripper suspects. And I might even include, you know, prominent ones like Prince Albert Victor. 
Um, it's just the amount of detail that we have about Temple T's life and movements is just pretty incredible. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree. Even by about 1878 is when Temple T stopped advertising. So then he, if you notice, he no longer tried to get into the limelight. He tried to, he avoided it. But thanks to him getting himself into trouble, <laughs> for one thing, that really kind of helped us uh, track him down in a lot of cases. And then so, but yeah, and, and also what happened, I think is, and then like in case of, uh, you know, Stuart Evans said that, you know, he told, said that he studied, you know, he researched for two years to write because he had, uh, you know, the, this little child letter. But then it was people like, you know, Joe Chakudi, Roger, Roger Palmer and, and uh, Tim Reardon. And what he did is Tim, he, he researched a lot, but what happened is I think he was going a little fast in certain cases because there were, uh, there were times where I could find uh, th uh, things different. For example, one of the cases was we see Tumblety no, again in the newspapers between 1889, 1893, giving the causes. Uh, he purposely put uh, these causes into the New York Herald. And the good news is he told us where he was. And so I could track him so that he was within a week of one of these murders that we're going to talk about. But how curious that once uh, he published his 1893 autobiography, which non-surprisingly had every single one of those causes in there, he no longer gave. <laughs> so right. he purposely did that. But it was an opportunity for us to find out where he was and what he was doing. And it was nice. And, you know, things like we have talked before with Tumblety involved in uh, the uh, in Civil War, there are these parts of him that uh, are actually well known, quite well known. It's just that I noticed that there was quite a bit of gaps, like between 1880 and 1888. Why was he so silent? And then so it was it was fun to pick things out and uh, and try to put things together mm -hmm. and one of the things that might be unique to american newspapers especially of the um 19th century and early 20th century uh, versus uk papers is um, because we're such a large country and there's you know th thousands of local newspapers um society columns you know it would it would literally make the newspaper if you know miss marcia harris had dinner with their their neighbors on tuesday they would actually print that in american newspapers and these local papers right. so if tumble tea happened to come into town there might be a little one or two inch column that would say you know, Dr. Tumblety, who you might remember from 30 years ago, arrived in town and is staying at, you know, it's yes. like the, all the local newspapers were very much prying into everybody's, wanting to know everybody's business in these little towns. So they would make news. So that gives you the opportunity to, with a name search to find these little brief mentions even of Tom right. um in in order to track his movements across the country throughout the years 
luckily, and I took advantage of that technology, for example, newspapers.com, where all these archives from uh, some local libraries are publishing them, and it's word searchable. And mm-hmm. so I got to do this. And if you listen to Roger Palmer, he went to Toronto. He went to <laughs> he traveled to these places, went into the archives himself. He did it the old style. You'd never you'll you'll just never. I mean, you do find some surprising things like we did in St. Louis. But I mean, uh, these archives are just amazing. And then uh, and then so I exploited that. Right. Now, the book is kind of set up in two parts in that in the early chapters, you address some of the pushback you received from a couple of Ripper researchers after the publication of your last book, Ripper's Haunts, particularly the controversy and debate surrounding Scotland Yard's Inspector Andrews' supposed duties in New York. I believe some of this information has been previously um, published in an article you wrote for Ripperologist magazine back a couple of years ago. But here it is in your book, along with some additional information. So before we get into the railway portion of your book, would you like to address this new information before we um, tackle what I kind of think of as the, the second part of your book? Right. And in a way, you can see it that way. What I was actually trying to do was before I go into the history of Tumblety and possible crimes that he may have been involved with or as some serial killers in the late 19th century, how to connect that to Tumblety and the Whitechapel murders. So chapter one, I just talked about Tumblety and the Whitechapel murders, but there's been new stuff as we talked about discovered. So I wanted to be precise in what we knew. I mean, for example, one of the things that uh, Casebook years ago talked about is a, a, a case of gross indecency, very similar to Francis Tumblety, Hamilton de Tatham. And he did the same thing with four young men just a year and a half later, but we didn't know enough information of why that was significant. One of the things about Tumblety is that he when he was arrested on suspicion and then he went to his remand hearing uh, around, uh, he was received into custody on November 7th. So British law mandates that he has to be in front of the magistrate within 24 hours to uh, at a remand hearing to see if the magistrate's going to remand him until the committal hearing, which is about a week later, to see if he's going to get committed up to the next level to central uh, criminal court. So, but it was hidden almost. We didn't see it. But Hamilton to Tatham, it was not. And the reason the difference is because he had open court session while Tumbley had closed court session. And the only difference is, is during open court session, the British newspapers were allowed to have a British reporter on the scene listening. And so they recorded everything. But but so in Hamilton to Tatham's case, his remand hearing, he, uh, uh, Judge Hannay, same, same mag- magistrate Hannay, uh, allowed bail. He, uh, so, uh, Hamilton to Tatham, uh, posted bail for his remand hearing, posted bail for his committal hearing, but his case went slightly different. He did have a, a grand jury, but then he was actually found not guilty. Well, in the Tumbley's case that we just know, thanks to these, you know, the, the, uh, central criminal court, 
calendars of November, December, we know that he was received in the custody and that he had these remand hearings and committal hearings. We know the committal hearing because he, because we know he posted bail in, uh, uh, in November, on November 14th or 16th, because November 14th was the committal hearing. So we know that happened just because he posted bail. So of course, sneaked out of the country, but we can see that case. And so I wanted to make sure that that was written because there was, you know, the old arguments that maybe Tumblety was in Holloway prison at the time of the Mary Kelly murder. But you can see uh, the judge Hannah or magistrate Hannah allowing bail both at the remand hearing and the committal hearing. So it matches. And so I wanted to make sure I had right. that. But, but then what I wanted is that this is all American stuff in the U.S. And this is what uh, Stuart Evans was talking about. He, he believed that there were lots was going to be found in, in the U.S., which is the case. So then after Tomley sneaked out of the country, we already knew for years, uh, even in dialogue on Casebook, about the, here's Tomley coming back to New York City December 2nd. And there were two New York City police detectives who knew him by face on the scene. But we, uh, but then the two New York Herald and the New York World had reporters. Uh, they reported on December fourth that there was this uh, English detective, and some people tried to argue that it was not a Scotland Yard detective. But we do. Uh, but um, I kind of want to make sure. I wanted to make sure that I, I demonstrated it was a Scotland Yard detective. But so here it is, Tumbley, a man who always read the paper. Here's. December 4, Tumbley is in his room on 79 East 10th Street, and he's reading that there's a Scotland Yard detective or an English detective watching his window. So by December 5th, he vanishes. And where did he go? And we just found out, thanks to those archives in Waterloo, New York, uh, it comes out, newspapers.com, here it is, uh, or uh, uh, and it had uh, Tumbley's in town. So, and that, I knew that was true because one of the things that I did on purpose was I did the family history of Tumblety, followed the sisters, everyone, and where they were so that when I saw Waterloo, New York, I knew that it was his sister that lived there. And then, of course, during sworn testimony in 1905, that son, Thomas Powerly, said so, or said that that's where Tumblety would go when he gets himself in trouble. So, uh, but then... At the same time, and this is what you were asking about the uh, Inspector Andrews, he came. He comes to the coast of, you know, Halifax, uh, Canada, on December 9th, on or about December 8th or 9th, and this was after Tumbley sneaked out of New York City. But when he got there, the New York World uh, correspondent that was in Montreal said that uh, he uh, that that Inspector Andrews got a, a second commission after he gets done with his first job was extraditing a Toronto prisoner to Toronto. Then his next commission was to find the, uh, you know, the murderer in America and who came to America, who, who sneaked out of the country three weeks ago out of England. And that was clearly Francis Tumblety. And he was in New York. So, but there's been argument in the past that, well, what uh, what was the real reason why Andrews came to Canada? And the real reason was always to extradite the prisoner to Toronto. But when he got to Canada, that's when 
this paper said that he got this second set of orders. So here the issue, though, is when he finished with Toronto, he came, he was coming back eastward to Montreal on December 18th. And there was reports in the papers that that uh, he was going to go. The next step was to go to New York. And but we knew that December 20th, the SS Sarnia and uh, another uh, uh, steamship was leaving December 20th. So if if Andrews was going to go to New York, he only had like a day at best. But then he was going to be leaving. And so. That was the issue, a couple of the issues. And so a lot of people were thinking that, well, maybe that was just fake news-ish. And so when I found that article, it was a, uh, a Canadian reporter that was at the same meeting in, in Montreal with, with Andrews. And, and, and Andrews was talking to them about when he was in Toronto that he, he felt – these people, these armchair detectives were quite condescending to him because they were saying, you know, you guys are not catching Jack the Ripper. You should be doing this. And that was quite condescending to him. So in December 18th, when he was talking to that, that Canadian reporter, he said that I expect the same treatment in New York. Well, what's that mean? He's going to New York. Right. I mean, he, that he quoted that. So and then there were reports that he went to New York, but. They might have been secondary reports. So we, uh, but that was him saying that. And that Canadian reporter, you know, has no dog in the fight. He just was reporting what he reported. So then what uh, Roger Palmer found is that a Halifax reporter spotted Andrews getting on board the ship back to Canada. And even at that time, Roger thought that and it was the SS Oregon. And just assume that it was leaving around December 20th, December 22nd, or December 22nd or so. So, but so I researched that and I found out that, that the Oregon had, was not at all in Halifax in December. And it was uh, January 5th when it was in, uh, in, in Halifax. That was, and then one time in February, one time in March, early March, like March 2nd. So, if it was December 20th that Andrews got to New York, he had pretty much two weeks in New York. If it indeed that he got on SS Oregon on this, uh, January 5th. Well, the report that the report, the Halifax reporter that reported that Andrews was in, you know, boarding the Oregon, that was March 22nd. Well, why March 22nd? Well, it could be that Andrews was boarding the uh, SS Oregon in early March. And that's why it was March 22nd that the report was because we have no record of Andrews being anywhere between January and March. And so basically Andrews had enough time to find out just like what we find out later when, um, when uh, Guy Logan stated that, uh, that, you know, Andrews came to America to find a murderer in America, but the, basically it didn't work out. So Andrews came back. So that would have happened January, February, March. And so it fits. So, uh, but I think the, the big thing to me was this, is that I wanted people to see that because what that means is because Andrew said that, that means that Scott Yard spent enough money, considered Tumblety enough of a suspect to have these inspectors and detectives 
waste their time on Tumblebee? They, they, I don't think they were thinking that. I think uh, that this right here is a case where they considered at that time important enough to spend the time. Now, just as I was saying before, it, it to me, it looks like a, you know Scout and Yard did not want people to know that they were investigating Tumblebee. And so this would be a case where they're not going to talk to anybody about it. So, and then, of course, especially since uh, after, let's say, uh, Coles or the post-Kelly murders occurred, and especially when Dr. Thomas Bond uh, believed that uh, McKenzie was likely a ripper suspect, I mean, a victim, that, uh, that Tumbley was off the radar. But then again, I still see some reports that Scotland Yard is still interested in him or something to the effect. But that's the fun part, uh, to try to put the pieces of puzzle together. Right. And, and um, do it, do it properly. Yeah, because it has been suggested, just to clarify for our listeners, um, when Tumble T gave an interview in early 1889 and said that he was followed by detectives, said he was arrested for the Whitechapel murders uh, because he was visiting, uh, he claimed to be amongst the crowd visiting the murder sites. There, um, Ripper, some ripperologists um, on the message boards had claimed that he was making it all up. That that this was just a publicity stunt from by on Tumblety's behalf. That the fake news, as you said earlier, came out of his own mouth in a way. Right. Um, his attempt to tie himself to the Whitechapel murders was an attempt to cover up, possibly his arrests for gross indecency charges, right. thinking that maybe, you know, I don't know, being suspected of a, being a serial killer is safer than being suspected of being a, a, a homosexual rapist or something. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So your new information, you know, does seem to put that to bed. That, that yes. suggestion that this was just a grandstanding, some bizarre grandstanding on Tumblety's part to, to especially, make him himself a suspect. Right, especially in the case that two weeks after that interview, he finally got published his 1889 autobiography. And the only difference between that one and the 1872 autobiography was his vindication chapter, what he was he was blaming uh, even though his report, the you know the when he was talking to the talking to the New York World Reporter, he was blaming the British detectives for him being suspected. But in his autobiography, he was blaming the New York City papers for scandalous comments, and right. those scandalous comments were there that was not about his uh, gross indecency stuff. It was about him being connected to the Ripper murders. So he was so in his autobiography. He was countering uh, those scandalous comments without mentioning London or anything. If he was a man that was trying to uh, take advantage of him being connected to the Ripper murders and easily was not, he would have done the same thing as he did in uh, during uh, the 1865 when the Lincoln assassination, when he was clearly not involved, but he put that in the, his autobiography because 
he could easily prove he was not that Blackburn guy. And so that was perfect in his autobiography. But he didn't do that in this autobiography. He mentioned nothing about London, Jack the Ripper, just that the U.S. newspapers were being scandalous. So that's strange. And it, and, uh, but, you know, his autobiography was written for American audiences largely. And all of the headlines screamed that he was arrested for being a suspect in the Jack the Ripper murders. So, Although in the in the body of the articles, it might say something about the gross indecency charges. It would, you know, the the banner headlines in in the United States what were did concern the Whitechapel murders. So what he left unsaid in his autobiography, you know, um, it, he uh, probably assumed that his readership would know exactly what he's talking about, right? being well possibly now the other thing about the if you look at all those 1889 or all those uh comments about his gross indecency it was not about they always talked about the maiden tribute act and 99 percent of that maiden tribute act were about maidens so there was even a, a u.s report about the girls in the area are running away because it was about maidens only a small portion was about the gross indecency part so they never if you ever look at those reports never do you see that and the first time we see that actually was in uh, the little child letter so we don't find uh any kind of direct comments just about the maiden tribute act of course that would connect him to the ripper murders that's why they talked about it because he's he's uh you know uh, violating females um, now, in this book, I must admit, when I saw the title, it worried me a bit. Um, the track record of researchers who attempt to fit their preferred suspect onto unsolved assaults and murders in the United States is a pretty poor one. Um, I believe, though, that Stuart Evans mentions at least the murders in Nicaragua in his book, The Lodger. Um, so Evans kind of dabbled in, um, in, in introducing Tumblety as, as a suspect back in the 90s, the, the suggestion that he could have been responsible for murders elsewhere, but he doesn't go any, any further than that. Um, so the uh, obvious case, you know, in, in Ripperology, when we see this, um, this, this, these kinds of books is, is um, you know, authors like R. Michael Gordon immediately come to mind, who would uh, like uh, his readers to believe that George Chapman is responsible for every single person who died in, in the United States, you know, um, over a span of 20 years. Um, so to differentiate your book from those um who you know we kind of scoff at um tell just kind of explain to to us what you're attempting to do in this book because it is daring and and uh some um some listeners and ripperologists might just um kind of um you know uh let's see uh believe immediately without even reading the book that you might have built a few bridges too far you know right oh yeah it was absolutely and i 
uh, the people that I was discussing this with uh, said the same thing to me. I don't know uh, how far you want to go with this, but it was a couple things. Uh, by the way, notice that all these 76 uh, unsolved murders and assaults, you don't see Kerry Brown in it, right. nor do you see the Austin Annihilator. Right. I'm, nor I'm do gonna, you I was going to mention that too. Yeah. Yeah. I nor do you that. see. Right. And I purposely did that. And so because they actually don't fit. So what, what I was looking for, the first question I get when I was, you know, had been lecturing, I always get a question as well. If he truly was Jack Ripper, that means he was a serial killer and most serial killers continue to kill. When he came, he sneaked back to the country. Were there any murders in America that were Ripper like and that uh, that he where he was in the area? Well, that was the basic first question. So then I thought, well, when you look at all the uh, serial killers, almost always there are women that get escape. So uh, attempted murders or what will happen is, let's say the the uh, another case would be Golden State killer. At first, he was the East Area rapist. He wasn't killing. He was raping first. So there are people that have these eyewitness testimonies. They can see them. So then I was looking, well, I'm not going to just look for uh, murders. I'm going to look for, uh, uh, you know, assaults. But I first was going to go for just prostitutes or sex workers. But then I saw these patterns go crazy. And what I was doing is I purposely, because we know now that Tumbledy was had an intersex condition, which they used to call a hermaphrodite, that he really had no penis, that if there were any uh, most, and I noticed this in, in America, that most, when I was looking through the papers, that most of these young women that were murdered were murdered, raped first, then murdered. So they called it outraged, then murdered, outraged, then murdered. And so I immediately could... Uh, ignore that one. Another one I kind of ignored, even though we know that Mary Kelly was murdered indoors, if we assume that that was from Jack the Ripper, if they were indoors, I tended to ignore that because there were some rash of murders that someone would break into a house. So I ignored those. But I also, if uh, if there was a case of they had a an eyewitness testimony, a good one that it was not of a tall person, I ignored that. And then if the case was solved, and that's and that means that's not always true. Even today, we know that, the, you know, the, the Innocence Project where we had 239 cases that the person was convicted on eyewitness testimony and 73 percent of those were overturned based on DNA, that we know that uh, that uh, whoever has been convicted might not be the perpetrator. I still ignored those. And there were a couple cases that I wanted to put in there, but I decided since I stuck with that. So all I was looking for were these, what they called mysterious murders. And these mysterious murders that occurred, that it was that the these local detectives, there was no motive. The usual motives were rape or robbery. And so if I saw if the 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 victim had her a lot of her clothes things stolen, then that I would ignore that as well. And then so, uh, so that really was a lot. And so then, but there was this pattern coming happening where these mysterious murders happening. And if there was an eyewitness testimony, it was a tall man in a gray Ulster coat, tall man in an Ulster coat. And then here it is, Tumbley came when he came back in December second, uh, in. Uh, 
on uh, the the ship when he sneaked out of the country. He was wearing uh, the report was he was wearing his long English Ulster coat. So we know Tumbley had a coat and had a cane and an umbrella. So and so I started seeing these patterns. And so that's kind of how it started. But also I purposely put in the uh, chapter on why if it was Tumblety, why would he be murdering? And he did absolutely have a lifelong hatred of females. And we know that back then uh, he used to use this phrase that back then uh, the phrase was always used uh, to a lot of Catholics, even though it wasn't doctrine, they believed it wasn't Adam that committed the original sin. It was Eve deceiving Adam. So women were the curse of the land that uh, the original sin brought disease to the world. So that means disease was caused by women. And so Tumblety, uh, and we see some of the uh, uh, report in Rochester when Tumblety was a young man, he still had this distaste for young women. Then we have a report of his brother Lawrence in California having the same hatred of women. So, and then in his family, the three brothers shows literate all the sisters are illiterate so the only the brothers went to school so we could see this kind of uh you know this thing going on so uh i was uh, again so i thought okay and then i found out and in that chapter where really he found out he knew that he had syphilis by around 1878 to 1880 and it may have been one of the reasons why he took this weird trip to europe for, from 1878 to early uh, march 1880 as or uh, around that time for a year and a half so that was kind of strange but it was right about the time that we know that he knew he had syphilis and so it was about 1886-ish 87 where he realized he had neurosyphilis and so that I go through the whole chapter how I break that down how that is so if there was uh, if you look at serial killers and that's what I did a lot of I wanted to see compare this with modern day serial killers and what what really is an MO, what really is a fender signature and then see if MOs are always exact and that's rarely the case. So, but I find to see how this would fit. And then they talk about serial killers having a trigger, uh, even though they may lack remorse and they could have killed in their teenage years, they didn't until age 23 or age 30 or age 40, you know, like uh, Eileen Warnos didn't start killing until later. And then she went on, you know, she killed in January, but then stopped for a while, just probably just to see, oh, that felt good. No, I didn't get caught. And then in the summertime, that's a monthly murder that she did. So we see this pattern. So I thought if it was going to be Tumblety, it would have been around 1880. So I looked in the 1870s and 1880s for these strange, mysterious murders. And I had a hard time finding any in 1870s. But starting in 1880, I started finding these strange murders. And then what I noticed was they're always near train stations or train tracks. And a couple of them were right on the train tracks. I wanna, I'm going to talk about a couple of them later. And so I thought, well, even if Tumblety wasn't doing all these, I think I stumbled upon one or a couple 19th century serial killers exploiting the railways. And it's like these today's long haul trucker serial killers, where here it is. When you on a train, you go to a train station, get off, murder somebody, get back on a train to leave. You'll never get caught because the local detectives think it's a farmhand or something, a local, you know, and they weren't looking for that. Not only would you not get caught, but you could see this happening 
for a long time. So, so it's like, I think I found, that's why I call it the railway ripper. But then, as I said, the connections to Tumblety come here and there. So, so what I'm doing is I'm only trying to answer the question, were there any unsolved murders or assaults of women ripper-like? And uh, we can argue on that one too. Uh, ripper-like in America where we can't eliminate Tumblety and 76 have shown up. And I really have, this is one of the things that I, I exploited uh, Roger and Joe is to find out, you know, Tumblety before 1888, you know, you know, for months he was going to London or Europe. And so to f see if that matched up or when he was, let's say, as a, a case with the one in Chicago. Well, here's a report that says he was in Chicago. So it's like finding his pattern, his train track pattern, which was really uh, intriguing to do. Have you read the book, The Man from the Train, about the um, axe murderer? Um, and the, I believe it, th this would have taken place in the early 20th century. Right. 1920s, um, right? Right. Um, and he, uh, the authors tie in the Vasilla um, axe murder uh, crimes. But essentially, um, you know, when, when the, they, they connected a series of um, the axe murders of entire families um, yes. that occurred uh, throughout the mainly throughout the Midwest um, to um, and then and they name a suspect, but they, um, you know, the, these transient um, activities of, of folks back then. Now, these were actually, um, they would ride the rails. They would be boxcar jumpers. Um, and then a more modern case, a very modern case that you didn't mention in your book was the one of, I don't believe you mentioned it, was of uh, Angel Resendez Ramirez down along the Texas border where he would ride um, the rails. I think he was actually maybe even referred to as the railway ripper um, and get off um, in certain parts along the Texas-Mexico border right. on the Texas yep. side and uh, commit rapes and murders of women who lived alone near the train tracks and then hop the boxcars to escape. And, right. and I was reminded of that case when I was reading in your book where you do talk about the disconnect between, um, you know, you say there was no FBI back in Tumblety's day to connect these local jurisdictions together. But even in modern day, like in the case of Angel Resendez Ramirez, it took bringing in the FBI for even these local jurisdictions even, you know, even in the, today's day and age with the modern um, police work, you have these small Texas border towns where a murder could have happened in one town and then a, a, and a duplicate murder happened just two hours down the, the road. And they didn't even connect those cases together amongst themselves. So even to this day, you don't have those localities um, connecting um, similar crimes. Um, and until the FBI yes. stepped in, of course. Um, but so I guess my question back to my what my question kind of was is, is um, 
Tumblety and train depots, okay, that would make sense. But are you actually suggesting that he um, jumped boxcars when you refer to victims' bodies being near just tracks and not and not train stations? I'm actually like, not suggesting that. Okay. Although it's how curious. Uh, just two or three months ago, I watched. Uh, a YouTube documentary on that Ramirez Ramirez. And I thought, Oh, I could have added that to my book, but because, <laughs> uh, but I, but I was too late for that one. But I, uh, Robert Anderson was the one that uh, led me to the first, the 1920s murders. Mm. And he suggested I contact that author. And uh, I just realized I forgot to do that. Sorry, Robert. So, <laughs> so uh, we talked about that as well, but I actually, when, uh, and it's, um, I have maps that's visual too bad. I, you know, the visual part, I looked to find out where the woman was murdered and where the local train station was. And for example, one case we have this woman before she got bludgeoned with the, in the head, she walked right by the train station. And that's where a tall man, gray Ulster coat bludgeoned her right by the train station. So to me, I, uh, and then the one in Boston where we have a uh, tall man in a mustache in a gray Ulster coat or an Ulster coat, a dark Ulster coat, uh, beat this uh, woman right at her doorstep. And as he walked away, this man followed him down the street where there were two police officers. And so as the guy, as the offender walked by the policeman down the street the guy said hey that guy just attacked a woman so those police officers followed that guy and right at that intersection he disappeared and i looked on a map that was the train tracks it was overpassing the train tracks and right over that train tracks right at that train station within an hour of that there was a tall man in a gray ulster coat trying to get a ticket to new york city and so could not get the ticket and so left. Well, then I, I do know that there's another uh, uh, train station in Boston, a little farther down, actually where Tumblebee's office used to be in the 1860s. But it to me, what I see is that he was exploiting the train stations as opposed to being on a train. And uh, another example would be when, um, when uh, Mary Anderson in June 1892 was murdered. She was murdered on the tracks at Perth, uh, near Perth Amboy, uh, near where this railway mystery murder happened a couple of years prior. But what happened was, is on, on that date, June 8th, when she was murdered at the tracks, on this is when Tumbley was writing to the New York Herald. And on June 6th, he was in Philly. And then he says, on June 10th, I'm going to be in New York City. And that, that track goes right through Perth Amboy. So within... So this is a place where we, I can guarantee you Tumbley had to have been at that spot at the crime scene, even if he was just a passenger going by, because June 8th was the murder and June 10th, he was going to be, you know, going to the New York Herald home office and June 6th, he was on the other side of the train tracks in Philly. So it was, uh, to me, it's that, to me, I see him. And then what happened was, is you could see that there was a train station earlier to that, prior to that. So I think he was not a jumper of boxcars. He was, he was exploiting the, you know, he was going to the train stations. Okay. Um, 
so uh, by going to the train stations, um, possibly to seek out victims, is it? Do you do you suppose that this would be because he would he would be expecting the odds are that he could find um, women alone who were not from the local area. Therefore, uh, it would uh, be very difficult for the authorities to then identify the victims. Or what? What do you think uh, his reasonings? Or do you think that he chose the the train stations as a hunting ground so he could possibly make a quick escape? But I mean, trains aren't there all the time. So was yeah. it in order to obscure the victim's identity, possibly? Or well, I well here's here's an example uh, that what happened was so when December fifth. He sneaked out of New York City, 1888, and he went to, to Waterloo. Then in the paper two days later, there was a uh, an assault of a woman grabbed by the throat. And the reporter said Tumbledy was in town, and re the reporter was connecting that assault to Tumbledy. Well, that was in the paper on December 7th. And then just after that, with less than a week in, in uh, this in uh, Chicago, what happened was, is there was a young girl, uh, Hulda Johnson. She was on a cable car and she recalls seeing a tall man with a thick mustache and a gray ulcer coat sitting across from him, her, and his uh, collar was up. And so he, she remembers getting off the cable station to go to the next one. This was nighttime. And so what, she, so then she started walking that train, that tracks. And that's when she got assaulted by the guy who grabbed her by the throat and put her down on the ground and said that, uh, and then she was trying to squirm away. And he said, uh, uh, you know, he's uh, threatened her not to squirm away. And, but then she did get away, started running away towards these men that were working on the tracks and two gunshots uh, occurred that didn't hit her. And now Tumbley was known to carry a revolver. But so in that case, I see him just being an opportunist. You know, it's like, like when you're looking at looking at serial killers, how many of them, especially transient serial killers, for example, the I, I, the guy that I really like to not like as a great guy, but Israel Keys, he's the one that left these kill kits in these cities from Alaska. So he'd go to the kill kits, find a victim, kill them, and leave. And use the all the stuff that was in the kill kit. Then he'd bury it again. So it wasn't the person he was looking for. It was the place and the opportunity. So um, I see if it was, I see him just having an opportunity to find a lone female person outside walking. And, it's, and that's what I always saw. It was a lonely street or something was dark or something like this so that he could exploit that. So I think he was just wanting to do what, the, again, Israel Key said, "Why does? Why do you, you know? Why are you doing it? I like to kill." So, and then so you can see there were a couple uh, uh, serial killers. They just like to kill. So I think he was releasing his rage just like that. So I don't think he was. Uh, you know, I think that's pretty much it. So yeah. it was a case where there were a couple cases where uh, the Rahway mystery. That woman that they still never figured out who, even though thousands of people went to her to look at her. 
they didn't know who it was in Rahway, which is next to where Mary Anderson was murdered uh, a few years later. And that was right on New Jersey, on the other side of New York City. That right there, she, so I'm thinking that was likely a, a sex worker or something. I believe you're referring to the woman who was uh, attempting to visit a doctor seeking to seek an abortion. Um, oh, that's another one. And that that's the most compelling one I found in the book. Tell us about that that specific case and um, and how Tumblety, what might bring Tumblety involved into it. Okay, that was May 1881, and so remember when I talked about that Tumblety knew that he had syphilis or he was starting to go to hot springs in 1880. So right about that time, you know, that's the Mecca for syphilis patients. So in May, 1881, there was a woman, a young woman, Ella Clark seeking an abortion. She, she moved to, I think, Connecticut and she was a domestic, but she got pregnant by someone and she wanted to have an abortion. So she came back to Manhattan and she was seeking out a quack doctor uh, Dr. Thomas and he that uh, so what he did when she did is she came to Grand Central Station her brother lived near Grand Central Station in Manhattan and Grand Central Station is purposely not south it's on I think 42nd Street so all that smoke doesn't get into the city but the brother lived there so the brother had no idea she came to Manhattan for the uh, an abortion so what she did is she left the brother and went to a friend's that was nearer to the quack doctor and mrs kennedy and uh, so she told mrs kennedy that she's going to go to this doctor and i i don't recall but i think she did not tell mrs kennedy about the abortion either but what happened was is she went there came back to uh went to the doctors came back to mrs kennedy's house and stayed there overnight and she did not have the bag she had at first she said that uh, the, the the doctor wasn't there but can can you know uh, take care of me the next day so that morning that as uh, she left and then mrs kennedy never seen her again the next time we see her is she's her body is in long island across the river in long, long island and it's uh, near a train track and it was two packages and her body was disemboweled uh, her body was uh, dismembered so the head was there the body was there the organs were not there but everything else was there and so they immediately once they thanks to the head being there they identified it who that was ella clark and so then they talked to mrs kennedy and the brother and they realized that mrs kennedy said that she, you know she was going to this this quack doctor well he 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 had a solid alibi he was not there and he even got out of the paper saying he was not there and it was not him so but ella clark told mrs kennedy that he uh that quack doctor was expecting here her and he just said he was just not even in town so curiously within a couple blocks of his office is Francis Tumbley's office. And this was 1881. If you recall, in 1882, that's when um, 
tumbled he got in a court case in New York City, and that re, and the, the attorney said that Tumbledy had a, a quack office in 1882. So we know that Tumbledy still had an office after Ella Clark had been murdered. So we know that Tumbledy was still, even though he was not advertising, he had his office. So here's Ella Clark. And by the way, Ella Clark was raised in Manhattan. So she knew Manhattan. And surprisingly, she's murdered. So so she had, if she was going for an abortion, she could not go to a regular doctor. So she was clearly looking for another quack doctor. And that was kind of the interesting thing. And just think if you were tumbledy sitting there and this kind of like the spider, here's the fly coming to the, the, the web, as in the woman saying, nobody knows I'm here. I want to get this done quietly and then go. And so I think that's when she left her st- her bundle that she had that Mrs. Kennedy said that she didn't have afterwards at the uh, the office of a quack doctor. And then the next day she came back, she was missing. Well, the reporter or the detectives believed that it was clearly a quack doctor that performed the abortion. It didn't work. She died. So in order not to get caught because it was illegal, they dismembered her body and buried her in Long Island. Well, uh, not that I'm a serial killer, but one of the things that you realize is at the time, the only way to identify a person is by their head. They didn't have DNA, fingerprints, or anything like this. So if the person who put the, the dismembered body there to hide the that, why did they leave the head? So the head was there. So, uh, but the organs were not. And this was a case at a time where I could see here it is, tumbly having an office, and if if and that would be kind of again, I'm not saying that he did it because we have proof of it. But all I'm saying is, you know, that question again was tumbly around when there was a a woman that was murdered, uh, in in this case, well he was, and we know right. that he was in that area. So, and I, I and do have not a only, of him. Not only did was his office located very uh, closely to the office of the the first doctor that she had originally intended to go to. And we assume was, was unable to see him, but um, his office, both of their offices were in within a mile of where she lodged with Mrs. Kennedy. Yes. So it's all very close proximity. So Double you could office imagine was in fact closer to Kennedy's home than the other quack doctor. Yes. So she would have had to go past Tumblety's office to get to the off the quack doctor's office that she had originally intended to go to. Is that what you're saying? Nope. Uh, it was more of a triangle. So okay. it would be that she went somewhere walking distance. One of the questions is maybe she went to a quack doctor in, uh, in Long Island. That's where the, why the body was there, but she walked back, she was there, walked back to Kennedy's uh, house right. and then and left she the left, house left, by walking. And left her belongings at some quack doctor's right. um, practice, not the, not Thomas's because he, he obviously was cleared. So she did yes. run into some quack doctor. And here right. you have the two of them, Thomas and Tumblety, within a mile of where she lived. And she would have known the area very well, as you had said. Yes. So that, yes. so it was that that was the case that 
out of all of them, I think, to where it was like, okay, you've put Tumble Tea within a mile of um, a woman who was murdered, who would have had a plausible reason to be associated with him. Right. You know, um, now you, but in your book and, and on the show, you've, um, you've stated about these patterns of unsolved murders and assaults, um, that they, um, that, you know, there are multiple assaults occurring near railways, each on a different night, incurring, occurring in different cities, matches the Jack the Ripper murders. Um, one big difference I see between the Whitechapel murders and this collection of crimes is um, all of the Whitechapel murder victims that took place over a period of just four months within the same area, within blocks of one another. It was a frenzy of murder that was localized and contained. Right. And something that modern society had never experienced on such a scale, with the exception of the case that you choose to rule out the Austin servant girl annihilator case. If you're suggesting that Jack the Ripper and the perpetrator of these U.S. cases are the same individual, then I guess my question would be to you, why do you think the the U.K., the London attacks weren't more spread out across the country of England even, or even stretching into Europe? given the long distances he seemingly preferred in the U.S. cases to use to either separate his crimes or train travel between them when he was right. carrying out these deeds in, in the U.S. Um, because there really is no contemporary singular explosion of this type of murderous violence in any district in the United States that would be comparable to the Whitechapel murders around the same period of time, except the 1886 case in Austin. Um, right. So maybe and I, you, and I ignore you, that. Did you take that into account? I mean, yes, I did. You know, when you, when, so when you say uh, that these cases are very similar to the Whitechapel murders, I see them as very different from the Whitechapel murders in that geographic, um, the close localized community in the East End is vastly different than a murder in New York, a murder in Cleveland, a murder in Chicago, a murder in St. Louis, a murder in New Orleans. Right. Over a period of years. So there's a, a couple things. One is that we're assuming that those were the only murders that happened in uh, by Jack, the hands of Jack the Ripper. But that pattern I actually find here too. It's not one pattern where we see along the train tracks, this railway ripper. The first thing I was researching where it was actually sex workers that were murdered. And when it's a city that has a red district, we know that Tumblety, when he was in the cities, he uh, time and time again, uh, uh, we have Tumblety always at night going into 
the darkest part of the streets where the, the street walkers were. And so when I, I did notice the, let's say, for example, with in the case of the Ripper murders, now that was London. If, if you're, a, uh, let's say, a uh, serial killer and you're not going to get caught, one of the, you got to, uh, we talk about the MO, the, uh, of, of uh, the serial killers. And in the case of uh, Jack the Ripper, you know, he, he murdered just sex workers or unfortunates, but it wasn't the same thing. And I think as let's say, for example, Gary Ridgway, the Green River killer, where he killed prostitutes, but he was having sex with them first. So we know that the Whitechapel victims uh, were not, uh, you know, sexually molested first. And there is an argument that can be made that that was more of an anger retaliatory, uh, a hatred for them or a purpose. Now, if you're in London, the busy cities of London, like New York City, or uh, even uh, you know St. Louis was the I think the third largest city in in the U.S. at the time. But what happens is is how are you? You can't just go and attack a woman on the street because there's clearly going to be someone. The great thing about prostitutes or sex workers is that they're going to take you to somewhere private. So to me, I see the pattern of that's what this killer is doing is getting uh, so he knows that there's going to be a police constable around any time. So that prostitutes taking them to somewhere for at least for a few minutes to do the business. So in the case where, when I'm looking at these in uh, the United States, there are those patterns. I mean, some of them, uh, let's say for example, like they call it the meanest man from November uh, 1897 to about January plus 1898. There was a man that this was in the Boston area and, and he attacked 10 women and the police could never catch him. What he would do would be he would uh, approach the woman and he would squirt acid on their dress and then run away. It was like the, uh, that's why they call it the meanest man. And so he was there. It was happening for uh, a month and a half or so, two months like this. So when you see in the case of serial killers, kind of like the BTK killer that uh, Dennis Rader, there's moments where they stop killing. And when those times when they stop killing, there's, they still have activities and they call them non-homicidal fantasy activities that keep them going because they're stopping the killing for a reason. And so whatever reason is, and that would be various reasons. Maybe he just got married, having kids, or the police are that close catching. And there are times where there's non-homicidal activities. And I can see in this case, this, this man. And then within a year, and that was Massachusetts and Connecticut, there was a woman in the city that was attacked. They put uh, the, the, the tall man. Uh, oh, by the way, it was a tall man in a gray Ulster coat. So then uh, next, a tall man in a dark coat attacked this woman spraying cayenne pepper, and metal shavings in her eyes and running away. And of course, that's to do permanent damage. So you're, and so what connected me with that is now this tall man in a gray ulcer coat. So again, another tall man in a gray ulcer coat. And so in, and then uh, what I talk about is there was a rash within three months uh, with that Mary Anderson, when she was murdered, that was New Jersey. And in, in New Jersey, there was, it was started, uh, let's see, it started with, the, uh, um, you know, Mary Anderson was murdered there. 
and it was a tall man in the gray ulster coat was uh the uh let's see actually they didn't know there on the tall man but within that those towns in that area there was a rash of assaults in the same way where a man was grabbing them by the throat uh knocking them down first and then bludgeoning them or cutting them and uh, again we know jack the ripper uh, in two cases, we see that there's likely he was choking them first, and that uh, we, uh, there's a rash of these attacks and one murder in that area. So there is a case where I can see these rash of attacks. And so it's kind of like when Tumbledee, when he would, if it was Tumbledee, um, uh, again, so when he went to London, he stayed in London for a couple months. When he was in America, he stayed in certain locations for a few weeks. Uh, and then, but he would be always transiting on there. So in, in, in large areas like New York City, where he'd say while, then we see kind of a rash of attacks or a rash of murders. So I do see there's a, a similarity as in, uh, in like, again, with the, the, the Whitechapel victims, it seems to be, it was less for sex, but more for, you know, the attack but it's for the ease too to be able to escape. So part of that MO was how can I accomplish the job and, and escape? And so if, if you are in the cities, if you're staying at a lodge or location, like Tumbley would have been staying at lodges, like uh, New Orleans when he had three different uh, residences at the same time, then he's staying there for a couple months. So I see a pattern of Tumbley when he stays at a place for a couple months, that's where you can start to see this kind of rash of something so but i also see that there is a difference and again in the case if it was tumbley that it was around 1886 that he realized that he had neurosyphilis his brain was starting to go so something was happening so that railway mystery in 1887 was march 1887 and then we know that he went on the city of rome to london till you know for about four months and then there was a murder at the end of 1887 and then it was May of 1888, we uh, we have a report of Tumbledy being in New York City from May to June before he came to uh, London, and there was a ripper-like murder in uh, of a Bowery prostitute with a throat cut ear to ear there, and uh, the the person that saw her with um, a man who she thought was a man that lived in the lodging house was a tall man with a thick mustache or a dark mustache. And uh, that was in the Bowery uh, area. So, but like, I see a pattern of these happening. So I do see a pattern. So I, there are like two patterns. One pattern is along the railways. And the other pattern is when, uh, at a, especially a bigger city, that or he's, uh, there's this rash of attacks, like New Jersey. That kind of reminds me. Uh, you know, you have New Jersey, when you were talking about Ramirez, where he could cross into Mexico and back to the United States. And if this is a, back then, especially, you're from New York City, you cross and you're in New Jersey, and we have this rash of attacks in New Jersey. And and it's time and time again, it was a tall man in a gray Ulster coat. So, and then like in Buffalo, when we have a, a rash of attacks by a tall man in a gray Ulster coat, and the attacks, again, started with throttling like this and taking the gun out. But as these these women escaped at the time because somebody stopped them or he ran away because somebody came. And, of course, we have I have a newspaper account, Catholic newspaper, saying that he's in western New York at the, that time. But 
I do see a rash of them in this pattern. So in a way, to me, it still will fit, especially London. I mean, how would you, you know, what if, if your agenda was to murder, what would be the best way to do it? Well, let those prostitutes take you to a private place. Um, so you're, you're, um, you refer to this uh, gray or dark ulster coat uh, several times. And um, you uh, mentioned in your book that, you know, it, it was um, a very popular coat and very stylish and fashionable. And Tumble T also liked to be very stylish and fashionable. Um, so that's why he owned one. But then that also means that thousands of other men in these heavily populated metropolitan areas that we're talking about also owned dark or gray ulster coats. It kind of works both ways, you know. Tumblety might have owned one, but it, it's not really... A, do you think it's unique enough? Now, when, when the descriptions say a tall man wearing a darker gray ulster coat who has a large black mustache. And there are a few of those cases that you cite that to me, you know, just that, that extra little uh, witness description adds more merit to fitting Tumblety in the frame than just a tall man in an ulster coat, given that uh, that they right. were so popular. Right. And then uh, now I would actually add the Chicago. Now, during the Chicago attack, uh, she had the said that the man had his collar up and the Buffalo attacks, the man had the collar up. And uh, so and the thing is, is, it would be more corroboration with things as in not only tall man gray ulster coat the style of attack where he attacked the throat first so like that the 18 the december 1888 attack in chicago was he attacked with the throat and had a hand and a, had a gun not to use to scare her at first but as she tried to get away then he shot at her so by then two years earlier in buffalo the tall man in a gray ulster coat had to collar up and then attacked and then pulled out the gun after the woman wouldn't do it. So it's like there's more to it. Uh, and then also the tumbledy-like things. There are two cases where it's so tumbledy-like that it, it's bizarre for me, just kind of like the Ella Clark case with the quack doctor. One, I actually talk about a murder of a 20-year-old man, young man right. in here. What happened is Pittsburgh, when you know Kate McGarvey, she got um, – uh, she had got attacked by a tall man with a large knife. And then, but within the month that this young man, his name was John Gonzalez, went, he had $1,200 cash, a silver uh, watch and a gold watch on him. And he went to his, his soon-to-be wife because they were going to get married. And that's why he had all this money. He says, this, this tall man in a gray ulcer coat following me and, uh, and he's, he's obnoxious. He's bugging me. He thinks it's because he wants to, this guy wants to rob him. Well, I don't think he carried the stuff in his hands. He probably had it in his pocket. So, so this guy was hounding him. So the guy, uh, John Gazales had a gun. And as he left the place, he says, well, you know, if I meet my, my man again, I'm going to, you know, let him know it. So what happened was is within an hour or two, uh, John Gazales was found murdered by a gun and, 
his money was gone. His gold watch was gone, not his silver watch. Surprisingly, that was one month before you, uh, we know about Tumblety when he was in Hot Springs when he got robbed uh, just before the, uh, the uh, Kerry Brown murder. So, and he uh, robbed of money and a gold watch. So he's looking for a gold watch. Now, two months after that, was when he, he he was in New York City. And if you recall that George Davis incident where he was hounding George Davis so much, George Davis said something back to him and that tumbled, he hit him with a cane. So it was at a time where he was, you know, this was just after the Ripper murders, but he was hounding these young men. So I see that case, this tall man in a gray ulster coat was hounding him very tumbly like. So, you know, that, uh, you know, that in that case, you see this tall man in a gray ulster coat uh, and then the other case were was uh, very, uh, oh, I know, the, the uh, Mamie Sullivan, when she, in, in Patterson, here's another New Jersey murder, when she was murdered and someone saw a tall man in a gray ulster coat uh, sneaking away at the time. Well, then there was this case a day or so later that uh, the uh, uh, a young man named Murtaugh came to the police, thanks to uh, the, the minister convinced him to do this. He went to he uh, north of Manhattan is Yonkers, and so his girlfriend, his ex uh, fiance, had moved to Yonkers and was going to get married. So he wanted he he wanted to rekindle it. So he went he went to Yonkers and to try to rekindle it. And she said, "Pack sand, and here's a dollar to get back to Patterson." So he went to a uh, in Yonkers. He went. It was a morning. He went to a bar, and there was this tall man in a gray ulster coat there. And he called him fierce looking. And so many times I see Tumbledy with this, when he has that mustache, when it's waxed, so many people call him fierce looking with his mustache. Well, so the guy was eyeing him, staring at him all this time. And so made him uncomfortable. But then he, he, uh, he went to, you know, the, you have to take the train to Manhattan to the ferry to cross to get to Patterson. And so what happened is that guy followed him. Well, he, what was he drinking? He thinks the guy slipped him a Mickey because he got all real drunk on the train. And all he remembers is that he paying for the ferry, getting on the train and the tall man in the gray ulcer coat was with him uh, or in there. And as he got off on Patterson, the tall man grabs him and drags him to the, the main street and he's kind of like loopy, but he still kind of remembers. And he remembers the tall man leaning him against the, the a tree. And the guy, uh, the man takes out a weapon or, you know, like a metal object and knocks, you know, clubs this girl. And that was the same night that Mamie Sullivan got bludgeoned. And so to me, it's, and it was a tall man in the gray coat. And that is so tumbly like, what you know, ignore the bludgeoning of the woman. But hounding these young men like this, that is so tumbly like, and it's to me, it's like a, a pattern. So I see the pattern with the tall man, gray the coat with the tumbly like stuff, but also throughout this time. So again, even if it wasn't tumbly, I think there was a tall serial killer or one or a couple. I see patterns here in there in the late 19th century. And one of the things I end with is that even if, Tumbledy, of all these uh, 39 murders, Tumbledy murdered at least one of these women or murdered that young man or murdered a woman. He's a killer of women and he is a Jack the Ripper suspect. So, but again, the, the biggest reason what I was doing is I was answering the question, were there any unsolved murders? These are all unsolved murders. 
and attempted murders where I can't eliminate them and I still can't eliminate, which means, uh, and now it's in books, so anybody can come and investigate. The cool thing about every one of these, I can't find them on Google. These are all new. I So the neat thing about these women and that young man is now they're, at least they're getting one more voice. They have a voice. Uh, uh, and so they're not, hit, you know, gone from history. Right. It is an interesting read and does bring to our attention information about a lot of American crimes against women that yes. outside of any Ripper connection, which is nearly impossible to prove, you must admit. Right. I mean, the, these cases do demand further investigation. Absolutely. Um, yep. I did want to add real quick that um, some of the um, examples that you give that you thought were Tumblety-like, see, it, it, to me, the weirder ones were the ones that were Tumblety-like, uh, just how I would imagine it. The guy who who uh, sneaks up behind women and to cut cut off chunks of their hair or, or the ones, the ones, the guy who Jack the Clipper. Yeah. Jack the Clipper. He was referred to in the press. And, um, and even the one who sprays acid on the women's clothing. Yeah. And then Um, Jack the Tripper, you know, Jack the Tripper, where it was just after the murders in Washington square where Tumbley's, uh, you know, the, he was only a couple blocks away. And so here's a tall man, well-dressed with a diamond pin walking around during the day, walking with a cane, or not a cane, but an umbrella. And I have a report of him always walking an umbrella, even when it's not rainy. And so a woman walks by, he trips them and then runs, <laughs> runs away. So the cops called him Jack the Tripper. So yes, absolutely. Yeah. And oh, by the way, the Jack the Clipper was a tall man in a gray Elstree coat. Right, right. Well, um, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here, folks. Thank you again, Mike Hawley, for being on the show. You know, I do recommend people go out and buy it. Um, You do in the appendix list all 78 cases that you found and give give brief particulars. And then in the actual text in the book, you describe in more detail probably uh, uh, well over a dozen of specific instances um, where women were assaulted um, or murdered that remain unsolved. So it is a really interesting peek into that era of American history, you know, and, and, and crime. And like you said, if he's responsible for just one of those 78, and that's all you're, propo- you're not really proposing anything in the book. You're, you're just basically, if Tumblety could be responsible for just one of these yes. tall men, with a big mustache wearing a gray ulcer coat attacks when he, in some of the cases proven to be in the area, then that's one more element to add to his suspect candidacy as Jack the Ripper. Right. Yep. The new book is again called Dr. Francis Tumblety and the Railway Ripper and is available at online bookstores everywhere. Again, thank you very much for being on the show, Mike. Thank you for having me. Best of luck with the book. Great. Thanks.